Boy, and this is Demise of the Podcast, my podcast about writing, and my book, Demise of the Trinity, of course. As I progress further in this podcast, I will have to branch out into other topics, but for now, we're going to be talking about my book, and I'll be reading passages from my book as well in each episode. And I didn't record an episode last week. This is only episode three, so people probably figured, oh, we got tired of doing the podcast. And that is just not true, because last Sunday I felt like my throat was going to give out on me. Anytime I get sick, it starts with my throat. And I'm not sick, at least not with a cold. Today I'm not feeling all that great, because... Uh, my wife and I have started getting serious about our diets again. And we decided to pig out um, yesterday, which means that I woke up this morning with a sugar hangover. I didn't really eat a whole lot of crap. I mean, I ate a bowl of ramen, which is full of carbs, and ramen's not great for you. And anytime I eat ramen, I don't feel good afterwards. And. I also had a, a lot of chocolate Oreos. The the Oreos with the chocolate cream are really the best. And I ate way too many of them. And now I never want to eat them again. I woke up with my head throbbing, my blood pressure way up. And my entire day has felt like crap because of that. The day itself has not been bad. The day itself has been perfectly fine. And that's really all I should probably talk about. Now, last episode, I said that I wanted to spend this episode talking about the women in Demise of the Trinity. And a lot of that has to do with my guilt over how I write women. And I've already gone through the whole spiel about how uh, I have respect for women and da 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 da. It's all crap. You know, it doesn't matter how I feel about women. Because what really matters is how the book makes women feel when they read it. Now, granted, my mother has started reading it, and she's not offended by it, so that's a good sign. My mother's fairly conservative in terms of things like that, and it didn't really bother her. My wife's read through it, hasn't really bothered her. I've only heard one complaint, and that was over that section early on with Charles and his brother Al, torturing that poor woman, poor nameless woman, that doesn't make things easier. But I tend to overanalyze things. I have this notion in my head, and it's probably based on the experiences I had in a creative writing workshop years ago, and also the fact that Brett Easton Ellis had so many people, especially feminist groups, come out against him because of American Psycho. But I didn't write American Psycho. I wrote this book that is kind of... It's, I want to say that it's even more of an obvious condemnation of human beings and the evil within us whether that be uh, toxic masculinity or sexism or racism or anything like that. Not a whole lot of racism in the book, granted, but uh, there's a little bit from Arthur later on 
Um, there's a chapter in part two where he has his first interactions with Benedict, who is a minor character. He's also the only, uh, I guess he's the, he's not the only African American character, but he, he's certainly the, the most prominent one. And a, a big part of that is, well, I'm not black, so I don't have a right to really write too many black characters. Uh, I did have a chapter in an earlier draft from Benedict's perspective, but ultimately uh, it's not for me to do. That's a no-no area for me. And I'm not Tarantino. I've already gone through all that before. I'm going to repeat myself a lot in this podcast, but I'm going to try not to. Anyway, the first character that I wrote for this novel was Veronica, and that was all the way back in 2010. And her short story, because most of these chapters started out as short stories until later on, was basically her being upset at the world, her being upset at her mom. Her mom attacks her. She cuts her hair. She cries about it. The end. She also had a friend named Wren who had her own chapter in the book at various drafts of the novel. And Wren was just totally uninteresting. As I said, I'm not very good at writing women. And the only way that I was able to make Veronica even vaguely interesting or complicated was because I I tried to approach a lot of what she felt about the world from my own perspective, especially if I were put in her position. And that, that comes from empathy, but it, it doesn't come from a place where I know what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. And Veronica is interesting in that she is, she was described by my beta reader as part demon uh, because she is of the satanic bloodline via Murray. So she's half of Lucifer, I guess you could say, because it, it's weird. Um, th- this whole family tree is odd, even to me, and I'm the one who wrote the damn thing. Uh, and Murray is uh, probably the first, after Walter, of course, he is the first man that Lucifer was able to create. And there was originally this whole backstory to that that I cut out. I cut out a lot from this book. Anyway, Veronica is half demon, I guess you could say. I don't like using that terminology. But uh, she's complicated in that she has two sides of her. One of one side is human. She was raised as a human. She wasn't raised to kill people or to take over the world like Murray. She was left to be abused by her mother, Allison. And as soon as she overcomes her situation, which she does by murdering her mother, that happens a lot in this book, she has to have Lucifer's child. And the only reason why she has Lucifer's child is because Lucifer wants yet another backup plan. And the only way that he can get a woman to conceive his spawn is if she has half of his blood. Now, 
in a sense, Murray is Lucifer's child, but there's a little bit more complication than that. And I don't want to get into it right now. I'm too dumb, and I feel like crap right now. So, Veronica seeks freedom. She seeks peace in her life. That's what she wants. She doesn't want to help take over the world. She doesn't despise humanity so much as she sees a kindred spirit in Birch and that she just wants to be left alone. And eventually she's murdered. And in a sense, some people believe in karma. I don't know that such a thing exists, but she did murder her mother. So she's not a good person so much as a complicated person. I don't really like to write purely evil or purely good characters. Everyone has an agenda and everyone is doing things for themselves to some degree, even if they think of others, at least in my little fictional world. You can believe what you want about people in real life, but I, I think that even Birch, he's, he's pursuing things for himself. And when he gets involved in this war, he's doing it for his own vindication because he wants revenge. And Veronica is unfortunately cut short in the narrative. And she was, as I said before, more involved in the second part because I brought her back. But that felt so stupid and, uh, dare I say, contrived. But... She has the ability to love. She has the ability to think for herself. And that's what the men in her life keep trying to stifle. And that happens to almost every single woman in this book, is that the men are trying to manipulate them or stop them from thinking for themselves. I think the woman, ironically, with the most freedom is probably Lilith, and she's li literally just, her whole character is based on pursuing the lust of men for the better gain of Lucifer. And she has a backstory. She has a whole history. I, I could write an entire book about Lilith. I'm, I'm not talented enough to do so. I wish I could, because that would be very interesting. Although there'd be a lot of fucking in it. I do believe that Lilith is a complex and strong character. And she has a whole history like Lucifer, like God, like any other character that obviously I didn't create. That people go into the book with certain expectations for they don't have the same reservations or prior knowledge uh, as they do for God and Satan and Lucifer or Lilith as they do for Veronica because Veronica's a completely new character to every single reader, but Lilith is already what you want her to be in a certain sense. I can describe what 
Lucifer looks like to you, but at the end of the day, you're still going to imagine the devil the way you want to imagine the devil. And if you read this book imagining a red-skinned man with horns and a pitchfork, well, there's nothing I can do to stop you from imagining that, even if I describe him as a white man with a goatee and very shiny teeth. Lilith is different in that she doesn't look the same to every single man. And she also doesn't look the same to every single woman. She appeals to their most subconscious sexual desire. And so to Birch, she looks like a redhead. To Ken Price, she looks blonde. To another character, she might look like a blue-skinned alien. Who knows? Uh, that's all left up to the reader to decide. But Lilith, at her core, is a very old being. She's the oldest living being on Earth. And she serves Lucifer in that she seduces men because, God damn it, we think with our dicks. And that's really how she subdues both Ken Price and Birch. Birch, for 18 years, doesn't do anything about the little problem with Alan Price and Hardly Freudlin because he's too busy knocking boots. What else would he want to do? He thinks that the world's going to be perfectly fine, and Lilith leads him to believe that. In her own chapter, I address her relationship with Adam from the Bible because the story goes that God made Adam, and then he made Lilith, and Lilith thought for herself too much. She wanted to fuck all the time. So God made Eve and cast Lilith out of Eden. And that is very unfortunate, but it's made for a great fictional landscape of writers, particularly male writers, casting her in these various roles. And I first learned of her through Piers Anthony. Piers Anthony's For Love of Evil is probably what inspired this book most of all. And if you go read that book, you're going to be very disappointed. I'm not knocking Piers Anthony because I owe him a great debt of gratitude and that this book wouldn't exist without him. But it's not a great work of art. Piers Anthony is a good writer. Uh, he's written a lot of bad fiction, though. And he writes for a specific age group as well, mainly horny teenage boys, of which I was one of. Uh, I cannot deny that. I'd like to pretend that I was very intellectual and in touch with my feelings. Uh, however, I really wanted to hump everything, just like any other teenage boy. And to have this voluptuous, satanic woman in my mind, well... That just made the reading experience that much better. I actually don't think that I would have liked For Love of Evil if there wasn't a Lilith. And she's in other books in that series. And she is a huge part of that book, but she literally just exists to be fucked. And I guess I took that same notion that same concept and applied it to my own world and if you read the price of the trinity which will be out later this year or next year uh, you'll see that she's a little bit more complex than that 
and I'd like to think that I gave her a, a little bit more of a layer than simply existing to be fucked. I think that the one character in this novel who gets the most uh, one-note existence is that poor girl in Al's chapter. And even Al tries to give her some sort of human aspect as he watches his brother torture her. And he's just as involved in that process. Uh, The other important woman in this book is obviously Aroma Thorne. Aroma Thorne was one of my favorite parts of the book to write, and that's why I put her in part two of the novel. And she gives birth to a very important character named Jason Thorne. I had to think about that for a second. Jason Thorne is actually named after Jason Todd from the Batman series. If you don't know that story, the Joker kills the second Robin, who is Jason Todd, and uh, that was probably the most cynical moment in comic book history in that the Batman company, whatever, those people who were writing Batman decided to let the, the fans vote on whether or not they wanted to keep Jason Todd alive or not, and they voted to kill him, so... Uh, they killed him off and it was awful. Actually a death in the family is not even a very good, uh, it's not even a very good comic. I don't like it. I own a copy of it somewhere. Uh, actually it's in this books of comic books at my feet over here. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of it though. I could go on and on about Batman I don't want to. Instead, I'm going to tell you about Aroma. Aroma Thorne, and I gave her a unique name because she's a unique person, Teehee. Actually, I don't remember how I came up with that damn name other than the fact that she has red hair, and I probably correlated that with Poison Ivy from Batman. Uh, Batman was very influential on this book, if you haven't already surmised that. Uh, Harley Freudland was originally based on the Riddler, and I was trying to write the Riddler as if he were a obsessive-compulsive serial killer. Again, a lot of my characters start out as sort of archetypes from other works, or a version of someone that I know, or a version of myself. And Aroma Thorne is heavily based, or heavily influenced rather, on... Freddie Lowndes from the Hannibal TV series. And I made her a detective instead of a investigative reporter with a um, Paris Hilton style website. She makes her first appearance in Arthur Lindsay's chapter and she arrests Ken Price. And I had a whole thing well, I guess you could say uh, a storyline or a plot line or whatever. Uh, again, I'm working on two brain cells right now. Aroma and Ken were going to have a relationship. And I decided that that was stupid. Because it was kind of a take on the whole Hannibal Clarice thing. That trope. And I figured that's been done. And I don't like Ken that much. And uh, 
Ken is important to the story, but he's not a major character. Uh, I mean, he dies in the first part of the book. The, the major characters who are important survive part one or they're in part two. I'll read you some of Aroma's chapter and you'll see kind of where I was going with this whole Hannibal and Clarice trope. And of course, that went nowhere. Uh, originally, she and, and Ken sort of have an affair and Ken goes on his own way and dies at the hands of Birch. And Aroma just sort of fades away. There's no real consequence to what hardly Freudland does to her, and we don't hear anything else about her. And that seemed kind of trite to me, so I changed all that. And this is where the chapter begins. I realize today, I say, that I've never heard your voice before. Ken Price sits on the other side of bulletproof glass, with his orange jumpsuit blending in with his pale skin. With black hair and brown eyes, his gaze often sours my stomach when I fail to see any emotion or regret in him. The night I arrested him, he went after that maniac who kidnapped me with a sword without a sign of strain. His expressionlessness face turned on us as we went to take him down, and I'm shocked that we got the cuffs on him. You didn't speak during the trial, I say. When someone asks you a question, you look away as if you can't hear us. Ken pleaded guilty, got a sentence of 20 years, and went into Wrightsville within a month. Since then, he's killed two guards and three inmates. The warden called me today to let me know they're putting him in isolation until further notice. I figured I'd try to reason with Ken or at least talk. I'd like to think seeing a pretty lady would give him some reason to speak. Now, uh, right there, uh, Aroma describes herself as pretty. Uh, and she's kind of thinking like Clarice does, or at least the way that... Uh, the reason that Clarice is sent to Hannibal Lecter, she's sent to Hannibal Lecter to question him because the men who who try to do it, they fail. But uh, once Hannibal sees a woman, he's all talk, talk, talk. And that's what she kind of figures will happen with Ken. And she does not have a high opinion of him. She doesn't think that he's intelligent. She hasn't heard, she doesn't know anything about him except that he kills people. In fact, I was actually thinking, because I was watching the Shawshank Redemption last night, and I was listening to the Cinephiles podcast on the Shawshank Redemption, how interesting would it be to see what Ken is like in jail. And I am reminded by reading this that he kills two guards and three inmates, which if I go back and I write a story, between the time that he's arrested, put in prison, and between the time that he escapes in this chapter, I have to figure out a way to have him only kill five people. And he also can't kill the warden because the warden talks to Aroma. So, that limits me a little bit. Anyway, I'm going to continue reading. Ken, I say, 
I get that you're a self-loathing little child on the inside and you're trying to prove your masculinity in this place. But I'm only, I'm only here to talk. I want to hear anything you have to say. Smirking, the first time in front of me, Ken rests his chin on the counter and ruffles his hair before smoothing it back. As he taps his fingers against the glass, a guard yells at him to stop acting out. Looking back at the overweight man in khaki, Ken flips him off and turns to me. Here, he says. Now you've heard my voice. May I please go back? The warden said I could keep you as long as I want, I say. It all depends on your cooperation. You know, he leans back. You got me on the guys I killed in Birmingham and Atlanta. I even took the blame for the cop you found in Barrow County, which I didn't do. But you missed so much more, including my father. Now, interjection time. Arthur is the one who kills the cop in Barrow County when he kidnaps Lilith. And the guys that are mentioned that Ken murders in Birmingham and Atlanta, that's all related to Hardly Freudland. And she never concludes that Ken kills Charles until now because Charles was just sort of presumed missing, although he was never reported missing. And, of course, later we find out, spoiler alert, Charles Price is alive. You know that if you read the first chapter of the damn book, though. But Ken thinks that he killed Charles, and that's something that happens in Price of the Trinity. That's the the other book. Anyway, I'm going to go down a little bit. Uh, There's this whole thing where Birch... Oh, God. Ken is cluing in Aroma to what's going on. And then all of a sudden, he pulls this cool move where a helicopter shows up and takes him out of the prison, which is ridiculous. I read that out loud, I think, to my wife when I was writing this draft, and she said, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. And I kept it in because that's something that Ken would do. And I wanted to have something kind of funny. Anyway, uh, Aroma is sniffing out this whole situation, and she ends up meeting hardly Freudlin. The whole thing with Freudlin and her is that he rapes her to display his power to her. That's all he that, that's the only re- reason he does it. As far as I'm concerned, hardly Freudlin is asexual. Uh, he never has any interest in men or women. It, his entire sexual experience is this rape scene right here. He doesn't have sex before, he doesn't have sex afterwards. He's born a full-grown man because Lucifer makes him. And Unfortunately, he sees fit to rape Aroma Thorn. The whole thing about that is, uh, I guess it's sort of like when I show Charles and Al murdering that girl. I want to show how evil someone is. And the difference between Freudlin and all the other characters is that he thinks he's good. He thinks that he's serving God. 
Therefore, when he does this, he thinks that he's proving some sort of point about the power of God. Anyway, I want to read a little bit of their interaction. I don't want to read the rape scene. I, I, I don't like it. I wrote it, but I don't like it. Um, there's a lot of things in this book that I don't like that I wrote. And it's not that I think I did a bad job. It's that I wrote bad things. I mean, murder. I don't enjoy the idea of murder. I don't mind it in movies. I mean, I like violent movies. I don't mind it when I read about it. But when I read about real murder, that bothers me. Um, I don't know why, though. There's something about, as I said before, getting older has made me such a softy when it comes to stuff like that. I turned to see a young man, maybe 28, donning a Brooks Brother white shirt with a red Zenzar tie and black suspenders upholding Ralph Lauren trousers. His combed hair, glazed with mousse, and moisturized skin reflect the nearby flames as black irises reveal a man so perfectly groomed. He's unremarkable without a soul on the other side. Smiling with his hand out for me to shake, he introduces himself as Harley Freudland, CEO of Fonda Communications. Meeting you, he sits across from me, is like meeting my favorite actor. I keep seeing you on the news when Ken was on trial. Central Network kept dropping your name and showing your interviews with the press. To my dismay, I couldn't turn off the TV when you were on. Central is my competitor, yet they had me hooked. They're the only reason Ken went to prison, I say. Oh no, Freudland says. There's another hero we have to thank for that. Arthur Lindsay. Freudland's charm inverts as his mouth relaxes from its strained grin and eyes grow tighter on me. Opening a folder that sits on the coffee table, he displays an expanded photo of Lindsay while he was still enlisted in the military in the 80s. The press never mentioned his name, Freudland says. The officer he murdered in Barrow County wasn't even pinned on him. Ken got charged with that, didn't he? Well, I guess his heroism outweighs his criminal activity. And what do you make of someone who orchestrates terrorist attacks, I ask? Two private properties with several casualties and now a prison with at least one dead officer. You're the detective, Freudland remarks. You're the one who's supposed to be lawfully good. So you admit to hiring Ken Price to murder and destroy property. Walking around to the beverage cart behind his sofa, Freudland shakes his head as if I told some elaborate joke while pouring a drink. Holding up a bottle to offer me some, I shake my head in refusal because I'm not expecting anything but a confession from his ass. Anyway, uh, this whole scene, it plays out sort of comically to me. It's this sort of Bond Batman villain being questioned by this very grounded detective. And she's very ambitious. She likes being a detective, and she wants to bring justice to this world. And Aroma is interesting in that she takes her situation and tries to make the best of it. 
Um, I think that a more rational person in her situation would probably get an abortion. But instead, she elects to raise this child. And I, I have a hard time... If I heard about that in real life, I would have a hard time trying to surmise why. I mean, I, I know, I guess I know why Aroma does it. And, I mean, as a, as the writer, I know why I wrote that, because I wanted her son to be in part two, and I wanted to write more of her. And she probably dies the least painful death of all the characters in the book. Uh, of course, it's not a pretty death, but it's painless for her, I'd like to imagine. Um... Now, her son, on the other hand, is a real piece of work. And he's different than Alan. He's different than Ken. His motivation is that he's been cooped up with his mom all these years. He hasn't had much interaction with the outside world. And he has a lot of power. I mean, half of his blood comes from one of the Antichrist. It's a lot to, to take on, and as I demonstrated with the other members of the Trinity, with all this power, uh, a teenage kid, especially a teenage boy, they're going to abuse it. So, that's really all I have to say about that. And anyway, I don't know that I really came to any kind of conclusion, other than I like these three characters, Aroma, Veronica, and Lilith. Another character in this book is Caroline, and she goes by another name. Uh, I think it's Ripley. I don't want to look it up right now. I'm lazy. Caroline had her own chapter, and she was also in part two. She was friends with Veronica in part two. I cut all that out because, quite frankly, it wasn't interesting. It was stupid, and Caroline is not a very interesting character to me. She was originally written as a parody of this girl that I dated, and frankly, writing an entire character based on some girl I dated is one of the dumbest things I've ever done. So, of course, I'm going to cut her out. I have to write something that doesn't come from uh, animosity. Even though, I guess you could argue the entire book comes from animosity about something. In Price of the Trinity, there are also... Um, well, actually, there's there's another one. Um, because uh, I'm rambling here, but there are four women that are very important in Price of the Trinity. So I guess I did a little better. Um, I'd like to write a book with all male, male characters, just so I can avoid uh, being a dumbass. The, I, I guess I can't ever avoid being a dumbass, but when it comes to writing women, if I wrote a book about, or a short story even, about Ken Price being in prison, that would, that would save me a lot of trouble, I guess. But ultimately, I am a very flawed person. I'm not perfect, uh, and I acknowledge my flaws, and one of them is that I am very bad at writing women, although, again, I'd like to think that these women that I just talked about have dimensions and layers, 
and I think Veronica is probably the best woman I've ever written uh, in terms of uh, layers and dimensions. She's not one note. And maybe, just maybe, I'll get better at it. And until then, this book is already in print, so there's nothing I can do to change it. Until then, um, I'll just have to learn from anything that a female audience has to say to me. Because ultimately, if a guy comes up to me and says, hey, you write women terribly, I'm not going to listen to him because what the fuck does he know? But if a woman comes up to me and she wants she wants to, to talk about it, I am more open to that because they have a, a perspective that I don't. I am done rambling. I am done with this podcast. The next episode will be about something else. I don't know what it'll be about. Uh, I am obviously loopy. I, I it felt like crap all day. So I'm done. Goodbye.